0: And welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network. My name is Manish, and I'm here with the man, the legend, Abby. How you doing, Abby? Doing very well, buddy. How are you? I am great. And today's episode I'm very excited for. It's one I've wanted to do for a while. It is about FOMO, the fear of
1: missing out also known as a rare millennial disease. Or if you're in this uh, this week, it's, probably, it's called jo- JOMO, well, Joy of Missing Out. The joy of
0: Missing Out. Okay, so we'll get into that a little later. But um, this episode is about FOMO. It's about human nature and human psychology and making good decisions. Okay, so that is really the title of the episode. So let me run you guys through the agenda for what we're going to cover today. Okay, so first of all, we're going to talk about FOMO. What is it? How do I think about it? How does Abby think about it? I have a story, personally, that just happened to me, which I think is probably um, a very strong realization I had about FOMO um, from experience it very, experiencing it very acutely. You know, is it unique to millennials? Is it real? Why do we feel it? What causes it? Um, what can we do about it? And how does it affect our investing lives, especially as cannabis investors? Uh, then we're going to go into... The levers which move the market which are fear and greed and we're going to talk about what happens when markets are going up what happens when markets are going down we're going to use bitcoin as an example which i know can be a very controversial topic but i think it's a fair one to talk about and we're going to compare it in some ways to cannabis investing um and we're going to talk about whether or not you know that's a fair comparison whether there's parallels there whether it is very similar or not very similar. And lastly, we're going to talk about, you know, close it all off with how can you take advantage of human psychology in yourself, in others, in the market, and what to do about it all. So again, another packed episode, but Abby, I have confidence that today we are going to get through everything we listed here.
1: You're an optimist.
0: (laughs) I'm an internal optimist. So let's kick it off.
1: FOMO. Abby what is fomo fear of missing out and that, what what is that I mean what exactly what is it what is it what does it mean to me uh it's kind of like you think you it's like it's I guess the it's the millennial version of the grass screen on the other side you just think what you don't have is worth more than what you have or you know, you're you look at a party and you're like, oh man, like I need to go to this party, and if I don't go to this party, I'm gonna miss out on this experience. Mm-hmm. And you get mm-hmm. to the party and you're not like, ah, it's okay. And then someone, your other buddy, texts you be like, man, you should've been at this party. Oh, I, see. Like, okay. oh I should've gone to that party instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just kind of. Live your life as a socialite. Right? <laughs> <In> that, <laughs> well, I don't know. In that, I, in that bizarre, unlike example.
0: Abby, I don't get invited to that many parties in one night, so I can't really comment
1: on that. Wait, but... parties plural? Is that is that a term? Thought <laughs> it was a singular word.
0: Like your mother's housewarming
1: party, you know what I mean? But then oh, gotcha, then, gotcha, you know, gotcha. Then your
0: aunt's housewarming party. Well, I
1: DJ at those parties, right? Like plug my iPod in, and they love it. Okay, so mo- moving on. Um,
0: that is a is a nice little primer on FOMO. I think of, of FOMO as as really being about um, a fear of future regret. So I think about when I think about FOMO, I always think about parties. I always think about some event happening that you're sort of having to consider if you want to go to or not, and you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, man, do I want to miss this party? And to me, it always relates to the decision you have to make. Right? Because if if something kinda happens and you miss it, you didn't know about it, yeah, you might you might get FOMO, but it's not as strong, right? Like the way I always think about it is like there's a decision I have to make. Do I wanna buy tickets to some event that's coming up, some vacation, some festival, whatever it is, right? Uh, some party, you know, go to some thing like fire festival. Fire festival, exactly, right? Like, Huge case of FOMO. You know what I mean? It, well, here's the thing: like, you see a promo, it looks awesome. Whatever, you know, do I buy tickets to this? Right? It's and it's going quickly. It's limited time. Do I want to miss this party? Because I think that what's happened is it's really about if I make the wrong decision here, um, I might end up regretting it later. Because especially millennials, I think we are trained to think and appreciate experiences and shared experiences. So if everybody has a great shared experience and we're not part of it, that sucks. It's very alienating. Yeah. Right. So that's, to me, the real FOMO is when you have to make a decision and the consequence of said decision could be future regret. Very well put. Very well put. I agree. Okay. So getting into it, right. Is, um, I have a quote here and it's, it's the greatest party that ever happened is the one you never went to.
1: That's FOMO. I'll
0: say that again. The greatest party that ever happened is the one you never went
1: to. That's like the promo for FOMO. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so everyone else is having a great time at said party, but you didn't because you missed the party, and everyone's going to talk about it, and you're going to feel like, God, I missed that party, and I could have been there, but I you know, I made a wrong decision, and... You know, I went to Abby's mom's house party, which he was DJing, and that was a terrible decision.
1: It was a costume party, and you didn't show up in costume, so... There you go. (laughs)
0: Um, So, I I, I guess I want to tell this story about it, um, which is why it was so on my mind, is that... uh, Okay, let let me backtrack a little bit. So, when we started this podcast series a couple weeks ago, the Raptors made the playoffs... Uh, then they made the finals, right? And then we were we were kind of like within striking distance of winning a championship, our first ever, no big deal, City of Champions. NBD. Uh, and game five, which was a, a, our potential to win the championship. We were up 3-1 in the series. We had a potential to win the championship at home. And I thought to myself, oh, like, and this is like right as we're winning game four. So it's like, oh, my God, we have the chance to win at home. I was like, you know what? I got to buy tickets to game five. I don't care how expensive they are. I'm getting tickets to game five. And I did. Right? So I snagged some tickets to game five, paid an arm and a leg, whatever. And at the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, okay, so game five. On the, the day after Tuesday, I was going to Vegas. Okay? So I was like, oh, my God, watch. Like, the worst case scenario would be like, if we lose Game 5, and I paid all that money, and I'd be so let down, right? And then I hop on a plane to Vegas, and when I'm at Vegas, we have Game 6, right? And then we end up winning Game... I mean, this is...
1: Well, Game 6 was way better than Game 5. This... I was here in the city for it. It was incredible. It's the best experience okay, I ever had. All right, met. shut your mouth for a second. So, so <laughs> Game... Okay, and... Uh, That's FOMO right there. <laughs> uh, okay, so...
0: I guess the point I'm getting to with this story is that... Um, long story short, you know, I, I happened to be in Vegas for game six and that's not the worst case scenario, okay? The Raptors won. We should all be very grateful, myself included. Um, but, you know, I just knew that back home in Toronto it was absolute bedlam. I knew that it was a in, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which is literally what FOMO was about, <laughs> where I missed what was probably the best street party in Toronto because, you know, everyone is so happy. We're all on the same page. You know, it, it really brought people together and I was out of town, right? Now look, I mean, look at me
1: like a spoiled millennial. I well, mean, yeah, because I was going to say, I'd rather be in Vegas. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You think that, right? You well, because I that. was here in Toronto. I was exactly. Like, oh, I would rather. It, was, it was
1: cold. It exactly. was rainy. You know, the streets were okay, but you didn't want to be in the streets because it was crowded. Right, right. I'd rather be a nice, like, luscious Vegas suite watching this right, than, right. Uh, on a TV.
0: Well, and I'm watching it on, you know, i have owned stories on Instagram, and it's like, uh, oh, my goodness, like, what's happening? But anyway, the, the point is, I had such FOMO over that for days and days and days, and— um. I really thought about it after, and it was like, you know what, like, I'm not wrong. Like, I did miss out on a really cool party, no question. And that was something that, you know, you might never see again in your lifetime, right? Knock on wood, I hope, hope we do. But um, the point still remains that, like, it really made me acutely aware of FOMO. And, like, you know, if you could have offered me some uh, product I could buy, you know, to get some some piece of the Raptors experience later on, I probably would have done it because I I just had this this strong urge that I missed out, and that was that really sucked. So... The point I'm getting to with all this is that by recognizing that behavior in myself, you know, it really made me just attuned to the fact that, you know, yes, it's a real thing. Um, It's caused by, you know, this fear of regret, right? It's caused by this regret of everybody else is getting it. Everybody else is getting to be at the party and I'm not, right?
1: Yeah, I really like that. Like the, I don't know if you coined the term, but I really like that term fear of regret. I actually like that better than FOMO. Um, in, we just in, coined it right here, a trademark. Babe. Four hashtag four. There you go. Fear of regret. I think that um, it's the fomo sounds cool. Don't get me wrong, but like I think I think you got it right on with that term. It's fear of regret. That's what it actually is, not fear about missing out. Because you know I joked earlier about jomo and Jomo's the joy of missing out. And if you, for instance, if we just to quickly tie it to the cannabis space. Um, A lot of people kind of just, they say, hey, all my friends are making money in cannabis. I got to throw money into cannabis. But if you were that one skittish person who was like, hey, I'm going to hang tight for a little bit. Last week, you would be laughing with Jomo and being, or sorry, this week, you'd be laughing with Jomo being with a joy of missing out because you didn't participate and everyone else is down. And you're still still pretty neutral.
0: Well, it's a very, uh, just a quote to think about is, it's a lot easier to be outside looking in on a bad deal than inside looking out on a bad deal. So, so it's a lot harder to be in a bad deal wishing you're, you're trying to find a way out than the other way around.
1: Fair enough, right. fair enough. So you're, you're, you're like peeking in through the bushes, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about that.
0: So <laughs> so um, the point I'm getting to here and I really w- was curious about is you know, FOMO is a relatively, it's a new term and we hear it in the context of millennials and Abby and I are both millennials. But the question is, is it unique to millennials, right? Is this something that only millennials have? And why is it a new term? And I think it comes from really the prevalence of social media. Because you know I read a study years ago that kids in high school actually get depressed easier because when they don't get invited to a party, now they see photos of it, right? And in the photos, everybody looks all happy. But if you actually went to the party, you know it's just another party, right? It could be good. It could be bad. But when you're not there, your imagination gets to run wild. Right, and I would say that in the real estate industry, um, the digitization and, and social media like LinkedIn, uh, I think I also see FOMO from a lot of investors. And these investors are not millennials; they are fifty plus, sixty plus, whatever. It's that now on LinkedIn, people post deals done. You know, you can see on land registry which deals have been done. And when other people are making moves and you're not, right? That gives people that same feeling, that that fear of. If I don't act on this, I'll regret it later, right? So it's almost like fear of future regret, right? That's really where it comes in and I see it all the time and it's not only a millennial thing, I think it really is just a condition of the human psyche um, and it applies to all age groups. It really is from the ability to see more information, compare other people's lives to yours and have just better cognizance of what's happening around you, right? But also be on the outside looking in, right? If somebody else wins a deal, you you kind of ask yourself, well, what do they know that I don't know, right? And then you kind of might you might in your head justify it to yourself, like, oh well, they paid more because X Y Z, you know, they decided that this is worth more, whatever, right? Um, but just because they paid more doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily know mean that they knew more than you.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, just I mean, if they paid more. I mean, I would say if they paid more, maybe that was their intrinsic value of the stock, right? Because int- intrinsic value of the company, intrinsic value is really the value you personally as an investor feel the stock is worth, or the company is worth.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what I was, what I was thinking is that from this FOMO I was experiencing, I was like, wow, uh, it just gave me a great appreciation for how when there is a emotional event occurring, which obviously fear is a very powerful emotion. I would say probably the most powerful emotion when it comes to investing. Um, It was just a great reminder of how powerful fear can be. And the fact that, you know, when this kicks in, um, this fear of future regret, it can really make you make some bad decisions. Investing is all about making rational decisions. And if you can keep your head while others around you are losing it, you are going to be a very successful investor. And let's go back again to I don't know if I've mentioned this Warren Buffett quote yet on this episode, but uh, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. So when there is emotional behavior in the market, we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of it in ourselves and we need to act rationally as best we can, and what we'll talk about later, um, or maybe even now, is the name of the game is really creating systems in which you set yourself up for success. So to me, one of the best ways to do that is by understanding how you think, understanding how human behavior works, and then trying to match up your investment products and strategy with the things that will lead you to success. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. Do you want me to like, okay. Yeah, so, can so, you elaborate a little bit So on elaborating
0: that? on that, right, one of the things we talk about a lot in real estate is the reason people get rich in real estate is that I think it is set up in such a way that leads to success because it involves cash flow um, and it has high transactional cost. So when people buy, even if, prices go up 20%, or more importantly, they go down 20%, it's not a very liquid asset. So, and and the transactional costs are so high that it's hard for them just to list their building and get it sold tomorrow, right? So that time gap means that you really have to think. It means you're not likely to make rash decisions. It means you're less likely to, you know, you can't click a button and sell your commercial property. It just doesn't work that way, right? And so, because of that, it's like I know people who want to sell and have probably thought about selling, and they're just they haven't got around to it. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't happen with stocks. With stocks, it's it's like
1: convenient. It's easy to sell. It's it's so easy to sell. Right.
0: It's so easy to sell. Right. And so, when we're talking about FOMO, we're typically talking about the gain side of the equation, the greed side of the equation. When we're talking about um, uh, losses. Talking about Jomo, we're talking about Jomo, <laughs> the joy of missing out, as you put it. Um, when we're talking about things going down, that's really more fear-driven. And the two levers in the market, the stock market, are really fear and greed. And of the two, I have to say, I think fear is much more powerful than greed. I think greed. I think long-term, you want to be greedy. It, it. You know, again, greed being the potential for gain. I mean, that's why investors invest. Um, and it's good business to not be too greedy,
1: right? All Absolutely. And you, you, put a, a, you put it very well, well when you said that uh, you, you, on the fear and greed equation, you sort of put more emphasis towards fear versus greed. My question to you and my question to everybody else who's listening as well is let's say you had 100 bucks and you lose the entire amount. Now you have zero. How do you feel? If you could equate that feeling, how would it feel? But let's say you have 100 bucks and you double it. Now you have 200 bucks. Is the feeling equal? So is it you losing a hundred bucks equate equi- equally to you gaining a hundred bucks? Well, Which the only did you feel the about? only
0: way to answer that question truly is to have your money in the market and experience for yourself what losing that hundred dollars feels like and that what
1: gut wrenching feel that gut
0: wrenching. It's not even hundred, it's
1: ten. Even sometimes you're like, oh god.
0: Listen, loss is loss. Right. Right. And that's again to something I said last episode why it's so important if you want to get started to get started even if it's a small amount of money you get started because the emotional learning you have to do with the ups and downs is so critical and you're going to make mistakes so it's way better that you make mistakes with a 1000 bucks
1: than with 10000 bucks right right but the other thing is a lot of our investors or sorry a lot of our listeners who are probably listening in on the fear side, if they haven't invested, it's probably based off of free or uh, based off of fear and not greed, right? Well, I'm I, okay. I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess I'll, I'll open this back up. I know I asked you guys earlier in, in our uh, first episode, like what's preventing you guys from investing in cannabis. Um, I, I think, I think a lot of a lot of people that are uh, getting prevented in investing in cannabis, they are. It's basically because of fear, right? The greed portion has not outweighed the fear portion, and that's why they're not investing in cannabis. They think they're going to lose all their money as opposed to they think they're going to get rich or make money on it.
0: Right. I mean, hmm. I think just what you're saying is more complicated because if you're talking about somebody who might be a little a literal first-time investor, I mean, they might just literally not even know how to invest, right? Like that. There's so many hurdles they have to cross as opposed to, I think- what you're talking about, which is something we're gonna talk about a little
1: bit later, is like But so even let's go okay, what? look, there's so many hurdles that they have to cross, but I'm saying the initial point, like mm-hmm. the, the initial the inception, when you when when you get that idea saying, I'm gonna go buy a cannabis stock. Mm-hmm. That in my opinion is that the greed uh, aspect of it or the, the of the upside potential the potential for gain is outweighed. Has outweighed the losses. That's what right. I mean. So yeah, forget about the hurdles, forget about I need to learn how to buy the stock. Let's just say you're like, you know what, I'm gonna buy the stock. At that point in 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 this equation, this fear greed equation, right? The upside potential, the greed aspect of it has outweighed the downside.
0: But I think it's important to to say as well, it's the way you the way you just described it, it sounds like if you imagine like a scale, right? Like a, a triple beam balance with two like, you know, two sides to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the yeah, heavier side the, weighs weight, down. Yeah. Right, but I guess the point I'm making is that it's not that, you know, okay uh, when one side tips over like, okay, greed goes to 52% and fear is 48%, greed's a little heavier okay, you're going to act in the greed direction. No, it's that there's a certain inertia to life of having to make any action, right? And the greed scale has to tip to a certain number, which is different for everybody in every situation.. Right. It has to tip to a certain number where the inertia is enough for you to do something, right yeah, and actually yeah. pick a stock and buy it. Where and the same thing with fear. I guess the point is that um, if you you know read the newspaper and you're like, wait, can Trust did what? Like, oh my God, I own a lot of can Trust, that's more likely to make you run and do something. Than seeing that CanTrust went up 10% today.
1: Absolutely. And it's more likely for you to even pay attention and read that article about CanTrust if you own it, right? Absolutely. So that's my point that
0: fear is a better motivator than greed. I just think that has to do with literally how we're set up as humans because, you know, greed at the end of the day um, or, the, you know, the potential for gaining things is great. But uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that as humans, you know, resources are limited and we have to be hardwired to not lose what we already have right? because that could lead to ruin, whereas getting more resources is great and we're definitely hardwired to do that. Um, But fear is a better motivator because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be able to survive.
1: Fear is a better motivator because if it wasn't, it'd be better to survive. Harder to survive. Harder to survive. I I mean, look, yeah, if you want to look at at it from a life perspective, but I, I don't think you invest in equities in general, not just cannabis stocks, but in equities in general. With the sole purpose of being defensive and, and protecting your capital, right? Being fearful. I think for if you're fearful, you invest in fixed income. If you're, I don't, I hate saying, I don't like saying the term greedy, but if you're, if you, if you want to participate in the upside, then I think you participate in the in in the um, the equities market. So going back to your earlier uh, comment on that, the fear aspect in the cannabis space. Um, this that was your own opinion that you think it, it mm-hmm. matters more for for you, right? I would I, I I would actually disagree, and I would say that it's actually the reason that I got into the cannabis space was because I wanted to make more money. Well, look, the reason anybody puts any
0: capital out is the potential for gain. Right, I guess my point is that when I look at markets, and this is very well, not necessarily,
1: not necessarily, it's not for potential for gains. It's to protect. It's to hedge. It's to, to participate in inflation and to to not lose their capital. Right, so that's what this people invest in GICs. They don't invest in GICs to gain money. They invest in GICs because they don't want to lose their principal. That's a fear-driven investment strategy. No, no but, invest on, in... but no,
0: but hang on, hang on. If your primary goal was just not to lose, you would just put it in the bank. You wouldn't even do the GIC. Well, the bank is going to
1: pay you an interest rate. Yeah,
0: I I understand. My point is that I I hear what you're saying. That is a a defensive strategy. But even defensive strategies are about the yield, right? So that's why you have to pay money on GICs. Although when, like for example, when 08 was happening and they had all this U.S. meltdown, there were some, literally like some banks were charging negative interest rates because it was, you're going to give us your money and it's still going to be here tomorrow. And that's why you're paying
1: us. You know what I mean? Hmm. I didn't know. I, I didn't know. I, I know Japan was flirting with that. I know there was. It like, was very dinner. short
0: term, but it's just a point. But anyway, I mean, I think we're getting away from the point, which is um, fear versus greed. I just want to clarify the point, though, is that when I say fear is more powerful, I think if you look at sort of a map of of markets in general, markets go up over time, right? Yeah. And that is long term greed at play, which makes sense. But then you see these like corrections, and often like really, sometimes they can just be short sort of. Drops. You have these. Sometimes you just have these, like these panics where things just drop, and then you know a month, two months later, it's almost back to normal, right? Yeah. And that to December two thousand and eighteen. Right. It, that's a great one, right? So so, and that's only six months ago, and I think that's a great comparison to where we are today, because when I track a lot of the prices of companies that I'm interested in, they're actually quite comparable, or I would say within striking distance of where they were in December of two thousand and eighteen, right? And that to me is sort of a good personal indicator that there's value there because right. the whole time we're looking back at that time frame, December 2018, This we've been on a bull run for six months. And I was looking back at the prices from 18 and I was like, oh, if only I had more money December of 2018, you know, I would have bought all these stocks so cheap. Right. right. Um, and this this feeds directly into basically the next point that we're going to talk about, which is what is human psychology? What's happening with human psychology and how do we think in general? When things are going up, right? So when things are going up, or like let's say when they're just starting out, right? When it's kind of uncertain, but they're they're kind of trending upwards, um, we put money in. To your point, you know, for the potential for gain, right? We're right. we're putting money into equities because we want to see gains, and we probably, you know, when we when we when you know if I rewind the clock two years to when I made my first cannabis investment, when I put a dollar into a cannabis company, I wasn't thinking to myself, oh, I better get a five x return. I was just thinking, oh, you know, like this will probably do well. If you had to ask me at, at the time, I was like I would probably say, well, you know, if I'm lucky, maybe this will double in a couple of years, right? I didn't have the expectation of I didn't know where it was going, right? I was hoping it was going up, but I didn't have a number in mind, right? And then it goes 2x, 3x, 4x and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, what's going on here?" right? Like
1: and and how did you feel when that happens because, you know, you raise a good point, like how do you feel when stocks are going up? How do you feel when stocks are going down? Me personally, I mean, I'm a professional investor, but prior to me being one, when I was just doing my own portfolio and I was still in school and I was just kind of learning everything on my own, when I was investing, every time stocks were going up, I was like, oh my God, it's going to go down. I should get out. Oh my God, it's going to go up. It's going to go down. I should get out. Oh my God, it's going to go down. I should get out. But it kept going up. And then when stocks- So you never were, sold. I, I held. I held. You held I,
0: on to Enron. You held on to Briex, all the winners.
1: You You didn't? <laughs>
0: oh, I was I was in high school at
1: the time. So I don't even I think I was born when. I don't even. Yeah, I, I, I was in like elementary school. I think for when Enron was, was happening.
0: Weren't you the CFO of uh, what was it called? Briex uh, World What was <laughs> that one? Worldcom. <laughs> World. Worldcom. Yeah, Worldcom.
1: Yeah, yeah, World. uh, um, different life. <laughs> no, but, but so like we, what don't, talk, we at, don't talk about <laughs> <yeah, life> <laughs> Worldcom. Oh man. Um, what, what I uh, what, what I what I wanted to kind of get back to. Was that, but when when the markets are going down, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, I really got to get out. I really got to get out. Mm -hmm. I really Mm got to get out. I really got to get out. And then you got to remember that, like, you know, we go back to valuations, we go back to strong management teams, clean balance sheets, barriers to entries. Um, Do I still have conviction behind the name? Is this just noise? What's going on? You go back, you you have to go back to all that stuff, right? And this is why working with a professional is very important, is because they have something that we call sell discipline. Sell discipline is very important, right? Um, I don't know. If that should be a different topic, or whatnot. But going, I think, I think
0: up, it folds in nicely to what we're talking with, with about the, here, with the right? FOMO, right? It's, like, it's about like making fear and, rash- sorry, with
1: fear and greed with the fear, and right?
0: Greed. It's about but it's about uh, making rational decisions in, in in irrational times.
1: Absolutely, that's
0: what this is all about. That's the
1: name of the game. And you want to hear something funny? A lot of professional investors who manage, like, who are portfolio managers that manage money for other people, don't manage their own money and it's not because they don't manage their own money because they're incompetent at their job they usually give a portion of their money to other money managers because the other money manager does not have a bias they can stick to that cell discipline when you start putting emotion in when it's your own capital at that risk there's emotion involved and you know you might start overlooking some some red flags right that's, that's an interesting point i hadn't thought of
0: so so fear and greed um in the long term, you know, really, you want to be greedy, but you know, fear is fear is there for a reason, and it's important. It's an important emotion. It's an important motivator, right?
1: I mean, for sure, for sure. I especially on in the cannabis space, I really think that people. Um, Going back to the whole fear greed equation, I think it should be like a sixty forty split with sixty percent fear, forty percent greed. And why? The reason that I say that is because you know only put the money that you can afford to lose, or only put the money where you don't care if it goes up down, whatnot. Because mm-hmm. you know you, you you've got to be prudent a little bit. Where,
0: right? And and this comes to the point that I was I was making, which is you know I talked about commercial real estate. People get rich because the structure. Of the, in, the investment is structured in their favor. In, the investment is structured in a way um, that allows them to make rational decisions. Okay, uh, and it's not on purpose. It's, you know, it's not like somebody said, "Oh, we're going to make the process of selling commercial property slow so people can make good decisions." No. Well, it's the reason just that, the way it is. Yeah,
1: because it's private equity, right? It's between two parties or a, a finite number of parties. Everybody knows who's involved when they're when the deal is being initially created. That doesn't. Commercial properties don't trade on an open market or right. o- tra- trade on an open exchange, right? right, so, right. so, given that, that's that, that makes sense. I mean, on the cannabis side, that happens as well. Uh, it's just right. called private there's, equity. Pri-
0: yeah, there's private investments, right. right? So, this is what I'm getting into, which is that, um, you know, all the everything you just said is true. Like, know your companies. You know, have this kind of risk capital. Uh, but what I'm getting at is. I think the end goal of this is to try to get to some actionable advice. and And the biggest one i would I would say is that try to get yourself into investment structures, like what like I'm talking about with commercial real estate, um, that are kind of tilted in your favor, right? So what let's break down what I mean by that. So, for example, um, the to answer your question, Abby, about I put some money into. You know, canopy growth in a free two years ago, and suddenly it doubles, it triples. In six months, it went about 5x. And it was, at that time, the most money I'd ever invested in my life. So it was a big, big gain. It was, it was by no means insignificant. Um, and the reason why, you know, as things go up, I like to sell, but when things go 5x, like I'm amazed I didn't sell at all or, or sell even before that, right? The reason I didn't, and again, it wasn't on purpose, it, it was just dumb luck. It was that, I was buying in the summer of 2017. Cannabis was slated to go legal at that time in the summer of 2018. It ended up going legal in October of 2018. But the point was it was supposed to go legal a year later. And I just kept saying to myself, I'm going to hold this until it goes legal. My, that was my, my mission was I'm not selling a share of this until it goes legal.
1: But it going legal was not a fact. It was a rumor. So you bought off a of rumor and you sold off a of fact.
0: No, no. Uh, well, it was there was. I'm not saying there was no uncertainty. There was definitely some uncertainty, but at that stage, it was pretty far along.
1: It was coming down the grapevines. No, in 2017.
0: Saying. It was. It was not a grapevine trade. It was like. I mean, that was. There was still a lot of there, uncertainty. For sure, there was legislation that had to happen, and everything kept getting pushed back. Things were getting pushed, and my my feeling was. It's gonna happen. It might get pushed back, but it's gonna happen. And So I didn't care if it ended up being six months late or something, right? Right. But again, to your point, this is risk capital that I had. It was cash that I had. If it, you know, if I was borrowing that money, if I needed that money for something else, and I needed that, you know, if I needed legalization to happen on July first, right, which is what it was initially slated for, um, and you had a sell order on July second. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Then you have a problem, right? right? Exactly. So. So I got very lucky and and it's very like it's hindsight looking back at it like, okay this was actually um, a lot of luck for me because the fact that I had this hard date in mind, it was almost like I was like, no, I'm not selling. But then it doubles and it triples. I'm like, okay I got to sell a little bit. I got to sell 10 percent. Right. But I very I was very reluctant to sell. And as it kept going up again, I just I was selling just very small pieces of it. Um, and then like the end of the year is coming and you're like, well, you know, I don't know, I'd, I'd rather sell next year for tax purposes. So all of these things that helped delay my decision ended up benefiting me because the market was cresting and it was really rising rapidly. And I came to the realization that, you know what, like, we don't really know where this is going to go, right? We don't know how hot this is going to get.
1: So a question for you, did you use any like technical indicators? Did you use any sell side research? Do Like, did you use any re like what, what? Because that, that's that's very impressive. That, that's great discipline to have, right? When, when the thing is like four or five X, I would be trimming my position all the way up.
0: I, would, I was definitely trimming. No question I was trimming. But um, I was keeping, I would say, the vast majority of it. And uh, I aggressively to this day ignore technical analysis. Like I literally, when I see somebody start talking about candlesticks and whatever, I actually turn it off. And I don't mean to denigrate technical analysis because as we're talking about here, obviously plays a part because technical analysis in a lot of ways, if you don't know what that is.
1: I can see the emails flooding in yeah. right now. The technicians <laughs> are like, get this guy, get this guy.
0: You know what though? Like, like, I'm an investor, I don't hit on technicians. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying it doesn't work for me personally because that's right. not how I want to invest. Um, you know, as we're talking about here, human psychology plays a huge part in how people behave in the markets, and it's often irrational. And that's what a lot of chart reading is: is, is looking at the patterns of behavior and being able to, you know,
1: chart accordingly. Right. But the other issue. So this is the thing that a lot of technicians will say. This, I know we're getting we're getting very off topic here, but this is one thing that a lot of technicians will say: it's that the price of the stock is the price of the stock. We all agree that that's what the price is. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it because that that is exactly what it is. So at that point. At that moment in history, at that that point in time, that price reflects all information out in the market. All information, all fundamentals, um, all news releases, all upcoming investments, CapEx structures, everything. Yeah, no way. By definition. That's efficient market hypothesis, right? Yeah, but
0: like literally the efficient market. market The market hypothesis is hilarious because it's basically saying that all prices are always rational all the time and incorporate all of the past and future looking information, right? And my point is no, like especially when well, you... pass or
1: pass information up until that point in future assumptions.
0: Right. Okay. Fair enough. But forward-looking information or forward-looking assumptions. Right. 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 But the the point is like I don't whole... think you,
1: I don't think you'd have past-looking assumptions. Sure. Why not? I guess that's true. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair there you enough.
0: Go. So no. Okay. But the, but the point is, uh, I mean, of course the market acts irrationally, right? Like that's that's the point. I mean, humans. We're not robots. We're not perfectly rational. And then the fact that we're talking about anything future looking, you know, you and I could have the exact same numbers forward looking and applied. You know, we just apply different, different earning multiples looking forward, right? You think it's a 12 times earning multiple. And I say, no, it's a 13 times earning multiple. Well, that, we that get the different back, numbers.
1: But that goes back to intrinsic value. And what does this, What what is the intrinsic value to you? Your intrinsic value to you is different. Intr- intrinsic value is more of a fundamental uh, analysis uh, term or fun- fundamental analysis um, method, but that's what that, that's what everything you're talking about gets back into. What so, is it worth so to if, you? If but technicians would say right. it doesn't matter what it's worth to you because that's the price.
0: Yeah, so look, the price is the price. Great, right? But uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not even sure what we're, what we're talking about. I guess it's. It, I also don't,
1: I'm not a technician, <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's just, I think we just like uh, being devil's advocate to each I, okay, other. We Who's, should, uh,
0: okay, this is an idea. We should have a technician <clears throat> on the show at some point. And ask them about technicianing, whatever it is. But the reason I deliberately avoided it is because I want to focus my analysis on fundamentals and long-term investing. That being said, have I have I bought a stock because I feel it's oversold? Yeah, I do that all the time. I, I actually love investing like that. I think of it like contrarian investing, and basically, you know, buying into a um, a stock which I feel is a good company, or even an okay company that people have just freaked out about. Like that is a that is something I do relatively often. I would say that once I got into cannabis, I do a, uh, I started doing a lot less of that because with cannabis it was more about trying to find those companies that are going to make me, you know, are going to be companies that I'm happy to own for the long term, right? And my my attitude has shifted from, you know, just trying to buy a company because it's on sale to trying to buy a great company at a reasonable price. And if it's on sale, great, but if it's not on sale, but it's still a fair valuation, I'll buy into it because there's a lot of value to be unlocked. Fair enough. Okay. So very important to get into uh, the meat of what I wanted to talk about, which is a controversial thought, which is that I think we can learn a lot from the rise and fall and potential rise again of Bitcoin. And I know a lot of people are probably groaning because... I am right now. Yeah. Be- because, uh, you know, I mean, Bitcoin has just so much baggage with it. You know,
1: good, bad, mostly bad, but... Hey, look, no, no, there's there's, there's, there's a space for it. Cryptocurrency makes sense. Blockchain, I think, is a phenomenal technology. It's just... I just don't... The, the space is just... Way too volatile, and this is coming from a cannabis investor. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or
0: like the old hands, like, yeah, oh like no, this no not, is not that stuff. Too, no, no, no. Too,
1: that's just too volatile. It's, just, it, it's because I really don't even think I don't I don't think the most um, the most uh, uh, knowledgeable Bitcoin person out there, most knowledgeable cryptocurrency person out there, actually even knows what a cryptocurrency is. I don't think they can explain it. You know Einstein no, Einstein said if you
0: that's stuff. I don't think that's fair. Uh, I know people who can explain cryptocurrency and blockchain very well.
1: I'll put that out there. Fair enough, fair enough. I do as well. I'm not one of them, but I, there are people out there. So, I, you know, I, the, the blockchain uh, whole movement kind of really intrigued me, and I used to go to all the meetups. I used to go okay, and okay. be with all those people. Okay, you're in it. And I was, I, I, I've been in it, I've made good money off of it, and I've been, I've lost money off of it, and uh, I've seen things happen, and it's so murky. Um, I mean, everyone will tell you, okay, like blockchain is a ledger. It's like, all right, fine. You, you, we understand that aspect of it. Then you get the whole cryptocurrency. Then you get the Bitcoin thing where like, look, there's only be a finite number of coins. Right. Awesome. I like that. I like that. But then all of a sudden, the traders go rogue and then they start creating something called Bitcoin cash. And now your whole, hey, we only have a finite number of coins kind of changes, right? And that, and nobody knew that that could happen. I mean, maybe, maybe some people did, but the majority of people did not know that that could happen when we were doing these meetups, and we were meeting up in like basements, and we were meeting up in right. like on um, like Queen Street out here, and you know. So
0: so okay, let's dig into this because what I want to avoid doing is talking too much about the technical specifics of blockchain. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I'm not an expert on that. I don't know your expertise on that. I'm but, definitely not
1: an expert on that. Right. Like, but yeah.
0: irregardless, this is not a debate on is Bitcoin worth something or not worth something. Right. I don't think that's a fair debate for us to have. <laughs> yeah. What what I think is interesting, though, and very fair is studying what happened with Bitcoin and how it relates to investor and human psychology and how we can sort of take learnings from that and apply it to other markets. And as well, look at cannabis, right? Because like it or not, I think we will see similar trends, not only in cannabis, but in other sort of startup, high risk, high reward sectors, because Humans are humans, and if you can understand how people think when things are going up and when things are going down, you can learn how to spot that, you know, the trends, and you can learn how to spot that behavior in yourself, and you can learn how to make rational
1: decisions when people are being irrational. Well, going back to the Bitcoin and the cannabis parallels, you know, I think I think right now with the cannabis, we can draw a, a, a better parallel with the tech boom or the internet boom that happened in the early 2000s, right? You know, Pets.com. Um, small company called Google. Sure, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that one, but you know, company, companies like that. I think we can draw more parallels to that, and I, I, I personally feel more comfortable doing that. And you know, a lot of the guys who look at uh, uh, the tech boom are saying, "Well, the cannabis is the same thing," and I and I disagree with them. I really disagree with them for two reasons, or for multiple reasons, but two main reasons for. for for this episode, one being cannabis was thriving in the black market, it was already existing, right? So technology didn't have existing that. Existing product that people were willing to pay it's money. Tangible, for. exactly. And then on the and, the and the second aspect of it is if you remember all these tech companies, they didn't have revenue. So top line revenue is the first line item on a balance sheet. And cannabis companies have top line revenue. So you can kind of comment. Some of that. them do. Absolutely. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The ones that I invest in definitely <laughs> do. So. Um, no, but
0: like, come on, we're both investing in companies which don't have revenue yet, are pre-revenue.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. true. That's true. I have uh, a couple investments of things that are that, that are pre-revenue. Yeah, right you wouldn't,
0: uh, I mean, look, when somebody came to you and said, oh, I've got a company, it looks great, you know, checks all these boxes, but they don't make any revenue yet. Would I, would you say, st- I would still, I would still, yeah, yeah still you would still look, at it. Of course, yeah, absolutely. You still look at it, right? At you it, yeah. wouldn't say, oh, no,
1: no revenue. Forget it. Right. 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 That's
0: not the stage we're
1: in. But so. if the entire industry had no revenue, then I'd be like, hey, maybe this isn't the best, which industry. is what
0: it was two to three years ago. Right. Or they had minuscule medical
1: revenues. But do you was... remember? But my first point was that it was thriving in the black market. Right. right so, so there's potential for revenue. Exactly. We people we people want this product, yeah. right? There are people out there who That's want fair. this product. There's people fair. out there who are willing to risk their lives smuggling illegally across borders to get it. Yep. Come on, you tell you show me one industry where you show me another industry where uh, where, where people have that much uh, demand for a product and I'll show you a great investment. Yeah. So so look, I mean
0: we can I mean we can both obviously agree that we don't think cannabis is bitcoin. We don't think cannabis is the tech boom, right? They're different things. But the point I want to get to is I want to talk about what actually happens, you know, when you're, for example, you know, when Bitcoin is taking off and other coins are popping up, what happens, what actually happens in the market? What is that like? How are investors reacting and how are um, entrepreneurs reacting, right? The reason I want to talk about that is because it's recent history, just happened, you know, in this, in this uh, you know, last two years, and because I think we can take those learnings. And we can apply them not perfectly, but we can apply them to this market and other markets for sure, right? For sure. And that's how we can we can learn to think rationally. So, with that in mind, and by the way, a lot of this stuff happens in real estate too, like real estate. Well, really, it happens in,
1: in every industry. Yeah, it happens,
0: mean, like real estate's really cyclical; it just moves slower,
1: right? It just it just like when something it just always goes up. Yeah, back <laughs> the cycle and just goes up, 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 up. It up, does up. when I'm involved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, so hold on. I wanted to go back to when you're saying about with with the Bitcoin market. So. I mean, the Bitcoin market was very unique. And to, to draw the parallel with, with the cannabis side is that the Bitcoin market, whenever somebody would talk about that cryptocurrency market, they would actually look at the price of Bitcoin. That was the benchmark. That was it, right? So remember we, in the last episode, we talked about benchmarks. What are they? HMMJ was one that yeah, I, I yeah. like on the cannabis space. Fantastic so callback, by the way. Right. So with with, with, with cannabis, it's like you don't ha- there's no world price right now for the price of a gram of flour or price of a gram of extract. It doesn't exist. It's not like... Oil, it's not like gold, it's not like your traditional commodities, coffee, whatever. You know, there's a world price. We don't have that for cannabis yet. So Bitcoin had a world price, or Bitcoin had a price that everybody looked at, right? So when you're saying all these other coins that are popping up, what does that do to the investment aspect? I don't I don't know. I don't know how that, I don't know how it affected the Bitcoin price. I personally don't know. Let
0: me explain what I'm trying to get at, though. What I'm trying to get at is, um, how do I explain this? So. I got in somewhat early into the cannabis market, right? Yeah. But
1: it was a bit of a fool. I role. still think it's early in the cannabis market. So if you people are getting in now, you can still make that statement.
0: Right. Yeah, fair enough. And again, we're not going to know until we look backwards what is early and what is not early. Another
1: hour or so, and then it's late.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, the fear of missing out, right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess the point I'm making is that. One of the concerns that that you have is that what happens when things are going up. So so initially when you're going in, you're starting a cannabis company, you're starting anything new. You know, you're starting a cannabis company, you're starting a, a crypto company, whatever it is, right? I think initially people are skeptical. Anything new, people are skeptical. And investors, they're investors, they're fearful. The fear of loss is quite high. Yeah, but greed can turn into fear too, right? Okay, but, but hang on, let's, just, let's yeah. just start at the beginning, right? So you're an entrepreneur, you have an idea for a company, and it's going to be a, whatever, let's say a cannabis company. You start going around, you try to raise money. It's really hard, right? Especially because people, are, people don't, you know, they don't have examples they can point to yet of successes, right? They don't know if it's going to be successful. To your point, even a year or two years before, you still don't know if the legislation is going to pass, right? There's a ton of uncertainty. So it's not easy to raise capital. And institutional capital, for the most part, is going to pass.
1: It hasn't come in. I still haven't really seen it come in too right. much in, in this a, space.
0: And like we're talking about startups, like we're really talking about early stage startups with high levels of uncertainty. So a lot of investors are going to see it, and a lot of investors are going to pass, right? But some investors are going to put their money in, as they did, right? And then what happens is when those companies start to mature and start to take off, um, the market is, you know, then going up, right? We start to see companies succeed. We start to see companies go public. We see companies go from being worth whatever they were like twenty cents to being worth a dollar a dollar fifty right and what effect does that have on the capital markets for that space That's what I'm trying to get into for the venture cap space, right because those early investors who were a little bit more
1: but, sorry is the venture cap space or the the broader capital market space because venture cap that is what venture cap is
0: well, sorry when I so I'm speaking specifically like for example, when I'm talking I'm talking about like the cannabis economy or the or the, the blockchain economy, you know what I mean? So when okay. somebody comes to you and they want to start a company and the company is, you know, Tweed, right? But at that time, like, what's Tweed? Never heard of it, who cares, right? And you pass on that deal and then you see two years later, Tweed goes public and the dollar you would have put in is now worth $5, right? right. Does that make investors come back to the market? Probably, and like look at it a little more seriously. Oh, for sure, yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and that, that person who did put in that dollar and now has 5 what are they doing with that $5? Maybe they're, they're most likely taking some of their money out. And if they just had a return like that, you know, some of them maybe are saying, okay, you know what, that was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I'm taking my money and buying a boat. Some people might take that money and say, okay, I just made a lot of money, but I think it's still early. Let's do it again, right? So, so the point I'm making is when something, when, you know, when, you, when you're in early on something and it's doing well, what you're gonna see is you're gonna see a very fortuitous cycle, right? Right, where um, people who got in early and made a lot of money will take some money off the table and they'll probably reinvest it, right, in right. other opportunities, sure. right? So that's why it makes it easier in the case of, for example, Bitcoin, when you see Bitcoin doing really well and well, all, so these, all these other coins do. pop up,
1: right? Well, what I would do in that in that situation, going back to your tweet example with the one to five dollar, the Bitcoin going up, what I would ask is. Why is the price going up? Why is this worth with something? With, with right. something? And if all if, if if I if I can rationally explain the whys, and i be like, yeah, of course I'm gonna get in, right? But if it's just like, oh, it's getting up because it's like, uh, it's like tulip mania, you know? Tulips are now the the hottest commodity. Everybody needs to have a tulip. And It's like, ah, maybe we don't we don't we don't invest, right? Yeah, but what you said is so hard to actually know in the moment. Oh my goodness, it's impossible to know. It's in impossible the moment. to know. It's, in it's, the it's moment, hindsight's right? twenty twenty, right? right? That's the only way to do it. But having said that, though, there are things that can add. Credibility. So, for example, with with Tweed, I love that you use that as an example. Um, they Tweed didn't just go to investors and say, "Hey, we we think cannabis is going to be legal. Give us your money, right?" Um, you know, I, I don't want to use Tweed as an example because I don't know the full story behind it. Sure. So let's sure, use sure. another. Let's use another another company. Um, uh, it's a company called the Green Organic Dutchman t God. A huge success company, phenomenal. Just I, I, I think that uh, I made decent return on that on that company. And um, when you first looked at that company, though, they didn't have anything. They had nothing. They had never grown a flower, but they had licenses. Or sorry, they were going to get the license. And then some investors came in, they because they were very optimistic. Then they got the license, and the price went up. You're like, okay, so now it's one dollar to about this is these are the made up numbers. As it goes one dollar to about two dollars. You're like, okay, people doubled up. I'll look at it. Why did it oh, okay, they got their licenses that they're gonna do. And then they built out their facility. Now it's gonna three dollars. Okay, that, that, that makes sense, All right? Now they've built out this facility. Uh, makes sense. And then now a lot of people are starting to get in. Maybe it's just kind of goes up now based off of momentum. Remember, we talked about momentum trades. Maybe the momentum's now picking up and it's kind of lifting the stock up. But you look in that in this hypothetical slash quasi-real situation. There were metrics. There were tangible deliverables from management each time that justified why the price went up. Maybe it didn't justify the price at the moment or the value of the company at the moment, but my my intrinsic value maybe have been higher or lower at the time. But there was some credence. There was some credibility behind it, right? Yeah, but the and Bitcoin and the... I never saw. i i, I couldn't um I, I can't think of an example of where that happened. but but look, guys, like if you know this, you I'm sure that there's Bitcoin investors here who are like no no you're wrong this a b c and d please email me I but yeah it.
0: and and but i mean again this is not about debating the merits of the merits or not the merits of bitcoin right i mean i think that in any in any investment class you can always rationalize why something is going up or down because for example in your what you just described you're you're absolutely right you know being able to track metrics okay we got our license now we're worth double that's great right but at the end of the day like to your point if it's a momentum trade, if if things are going up because new capital is coming in, how do you quantify that? That's really difficult to quantify, right? There's no indicator that tells us how many new investors have invested in the market in the last 24 hours or week or whatever, right? And with Bitcoin, for example, I mean, that's the classic example of a momentum trade, right? I mean, so many new people start coming in. And this is the point I'm making is that when things start going up, and they start going up rapidly. We just hear about it popping up everywhere, right? So you just—I remember there was a there was literally a, a month or two where you just could not turn on the news and not hear the word Bitcoin.
1: It didn't even, that didn't even matter. I remember in Thanksgiving, my dad's asking me about Bitcoin.
0: Right. Right. And, but where, where did he hear about it from? TV. The probably news. the news, right? Right, right. Right? Like, my dad watches CNN for like an hour every night or whatever the right. news channel is, right? So, whatever they're talking about on that news channel, if it comes up once, eh, he probably doesn't care. If it comes up a couple of times, he's probably curious, yeah, wants to know what's going on.
1: Or, like, yeah, like, I mean, like, look, some people even heard it from other friends. I mean, like, okay, now I, I gotta, I gotta know what the, what is this Bitcoin thing? What is it? And, uh, I mean, yeah, it was, uh, it was a momentum trade and I, at least I think it was. I, d- I don't know what happened to the price of Bitcoin. I don't know. I have no comments on that. I just say. Right. Well,
0: I think what we can learn from it though is just seeing and this was a good lesson. I was involved a little bit. I had a little bit of money in. Um, I had some friends who were, who were really into it and so I kind of got more behind them and they drove the bus and because of that because I didn't really know much about the underlying technology uh, I was really careful about the amounts I invested. Right. Um, and... What I would say is what I what I found, which I find um, I think is is a good lesson for any burgeoning industry, is it was so fascinating to see how once um, kind of the once you have the blue chip of the industry, which in this case was Bitcoin, right? It's important to remember Bitcoin was one coin out of an entire blockchain ecosystem, right? But it's a coin that started everything. So once Bitcoin got all this momentum behind it, and it was you know, and people were seeing like, wow, this could really be something real, and the values are so high. I think what what happened is and I wasn't I mean, I wasn't in these meetings or anything, but I think what happened is if now if you're starting a new coin, right, if we're going to start Abbey coin, right, it becomes a lot easier suddenly to raise money. It'll be part of the Abbey index. (laughs) Fold it right in. right? Yeah. Um, It's. It's a lot easier suddenly if you're walking into these, I mean, I don't even know if people were walking into meetings for Bitcoin. If you're posting your coin thing online, suddenly there's a lot more eyeballs on it because people have just seen the success. People are There's stories about people going 100x on Bitcoin and buying Lambos, right? So that creates the next wave of investors who want to get in on that, right? So right. you've you asked
1: with- a lot of those people how they were making their money. Were they investing in Bitcoin mining companies? Were they investing in that? Were they buying... The actual coin itself, no right?
0: no idea. I would just say that in general. I mean, if you look at the run Bitcoin had, it's not at all like it's not that hard for you to go 100x depending on when you got in,
1: right? yeah.
0: Like you, you got in not even you know within a year, sometimes it was going like But 1, when 000X. people say
1: the Bitcoin market, they even include coins like Ethereum, they include um Litecoin, they include all that as they rope it into the in, into the Bitcoin market, right? Yeah, so what I, I was that's what I'm saying. Bitcoin?
0: So I'm saying, like, instead of I'm saying that would be like the coin, the entire coin
1: economy, right? Right. So, but like, but Bitcoin, remember, was its own thing and had its own cash. Ethereum had its own thing. Sorry, not cash. It had its own price. Ethereum was the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Litecoin was the same thing. However, so if you bought a, a a coin miner and you thought you were investing in Bitcoin, but it was actually mining Ethereum, there was going to be a disconnect.
0: Right. right. And and again, I don't want to get too into the specifics of of Bitcoin, right? But I, I mean, the the point I'm getting to is. It's about the market, like what it, what what it was like to actually, and, and because I was involved a little bit, I was in like checking the price every day. I was looking at these various coins that I had. Right. It was just cool to look at the price, man. I was like went from, oh. from thirteen thousand to
1: eighteen thousand. Well, well and
0: like... and uh, the crazy thing about that was just like it it never shut down. Right? It didn't close at four o'clock. Right. <laughs> it's, well, so it's the yeah, price it's is fluctuating. Right.
1: Currency always like twenty four yeah. hours. Right. Yeah, like yeah. it
0: was it was wild. But the the point I'm kind of getting is. It was interesting to see how one, you know, this this kind of the blue chip coin, and then it brings up a couple of, like you mentioned, other like sort of um, tier two blue chip coins, right? Yeah. But then there's a whole a whole world of new coins popping up.
1: Yeah, I and see. And you, you
0: don't know what's going to be good, you don't know what's going to be bad, but suddenly there's a lot of capital available because, you know, that people have made so much money on the first tier and the second tier that now they're willing to to be risk on. Right? Yeah. And
1: that, and that ties back into FOMO. They're like, oh man, like so many people have made exactly. so much money. Like I want to get get it. I, I want, want a Lambo. Well.
0: Right. I want to be able to put in a hundred or 10, or sorry, a thousand bucks and get a hundred grand because I, I hit a hundred bagger. Right. Absolutely. So, and I think that's really important because at the end of the day, people don't really change the way people work and the way people think um, it's important to study that because it happens again and again and again and again. So that's why I think it's important to to study what's going on with the way up with Bitcoin. It's important to study what happened on the way down with Bitcoin because Bitcoin had, I think, a catastrophic collapse. And I think that is completely separate from the merits of the technology. I think it just had to do purely with investor sentiment and emotion.
1: And yeah, speculation and going, yeah, you're right.
0: And, and it comes down to something that we've talked about so much, which is, you know, when you buy a company and not a stock, it means understanding the fundamentals, the underlying reasons you purchased it, right? Management, balance sheet, where the company's going, et cetera, et cetera. Um, When you're you're purely trading on technicals or price or whatever, and things start falling all around you, it's very hard to understand if that's, you know, know, it's very hard to understand why and if you should be buying more, if you should be selling.
1: I agree. makes sense.
0: So with that in mind, let's let's go to the flip side, right? So we talked a little bit about what happens when things are going up, right? You have um, I would I would call it almost like price inflation, where it's like the economy is suddenly more expensive because there's so much more capital getting involved. It's a momentum trade. People have made money, and then now they can now, because they've made a bunch of money, they can reinvest it, right? And this happens all, by the way, all the time in real estate. like uh, and especially because real estate involves leverage. So um, you know you buy a property for a million bucks. Suddenly it's worth you know a couple of years pass and it's worth three million dollars. Well you sell it, you know you just do some quick math. You made two million dollars. But no, you probably bought had a mortgage on it. So you're you know if you bought a million dollar property and a sixty five percent mortgage, you put in three fifty and that three fifty made you two million, right? So you know instead of going you know it looks like you went three times on your money, but instead you really
1: went six times because of the leverage, right? Wait. Say so again. It looks like you went three times. Well, if Doesn't I say it look like you went six times, but you actually no, went three times. No, no. Because no. If, if of I, the interest and everything involved in leverage.
0: No, no. Okay. So so hang on. So so good point. But if you bought a property for a million dollars, and let's yeah. say that's all in, all your you know your cost all in, right? Um, but you're right. It doesn't include your carrying costs and your closing costs and your transaction, right? It doesn't yeah. include those kinds of things. Well, let's say things. all
1: that's included in this million bucks. Yeah,
0: so let's say it's included in a million bucks and then you sell it at the end for three million, yeah. right? And again, that's net of all your closing costs and whatever. Right. Then you look at that and go, oh, this person tripled their money. Right. Right.
1: But you, hit... but exactly. But really what really happens, and I love that you bring this up because I don't f- I'm don't. not a big real estate investor. Actually, I, my real, I don't even have a re- really a real estate, ex- exposure to real estate aside from like the condo that I live in. Um what I love about this is when people look at the housing market and they're like, "Oh man, my house is quadrupled in price, right? Like I bought this house for a quarter mil, and now it's worth a million dollars." And it's like, "Well," and they're like, "Well, the stock market's never going to do that to me." And it's like, "Well, like your house is your house may sell for a million dollars, but the amount of money that you could possibly keep look at time duration, whatever, on it might be only eight hundred thousand, right? Twenty percent might have gone towards upkeep of the house. You might know, have to do some renovations." You had the loan when you took out the the, the mortgage. Closing you, costs, you closing carrying costs. costs. Yeah, you had to hire, you know, hundred a, a realtor, whatever. right? 100%. So that that all goes in there, and and anyway, sorry, right? that's more just like a a a thing that I always hear from from real estate investors. Sure, like that. you know, the price has gone up. It's like there's a lot of costs associated with it versus sure when you see like the stock market, you have this price, this price, boom.
0: Yeah, no, no, good point. But but the the point I'm getting to is. So, in that example, a million to three million, right? Um, Because of leverage, right? Because you're using other people's money, which is the mortgage in this case, the debt, that, you know, your equity in might only be, you know, let's say it's 300K, just for easy numbers, right? So you put in 300K, 70% you got from the bank um, or whoever, um, and your end selling price was three million, right? So you have to pay back that initial first million, but that two million is white meat, right? So your 300K of equity just earned you $2 million of profit right? So that's over a six times return on your actual equity, right? So now what happens is, you know, you had a dollar, now you have six, right? Are you interested in buying more real estate? Probably. Right? Absolutely. But the problem is you look around and your property just went from a million to 3 million. A lot of other properties probably went up as well, right? Now, did they right. triple in value? Did they double in value? Did they, Are they flat? Whatever. It's the, the market has changed. Prices right. are different now.
1: But then that's when you do your bottom up analysis and you look at you look- through the areas, and you find an undervalued property.
0: Maybe, but again- and That's
1: what people do with stock markets though, right?
0: People try to do it, right? But but again, the point is, and what I always think about is, uh, when something has gone up so much, right, even if This comes to what we were talking about um, on a way earlier episode, which is like relative valuation, right? So a company goes from uh, being worth 100 million to a billion, right? And then it's got a competitor, and the competitor you look at, and the competitor is only worth, let's say, half of that, five hundred million, right? But you look at them and you go, you know what? Like this company, I think is is not, um, it shouldn't be worth half of what the competitor is. I think it should. I think they're almost equals. So you think to yourself, okay, this company's worth five hundred. This company's worth a billion. You know, if I take money out of my billion dollar company and put it into my five hundred million dollar company, it's a good bet because that company's probably going to double right? That's your investment thesis, yep. right? But if you'll notice, all I talked about was market caps, right? Which, which equates to price, right? Price per share. Um, but I didn't talk about the fundamentals. So what happens is, overall, what might have happened is the market is just hot in general, right? right. So that billion-dollar valuation might be completely overvalued. Maybe that billion-dollar company is really worth 500 million, or, you know, if you based on future earnings and fundamentals, right? So then when the market corrects, if it corrects, if if that billion dollar company goes on to five hundred, your five hundred million dollar company, you know, is worth less than that, right? And even if they do everything they say they're going to do and and everything goes well, then they're going to be worth the same as that competitor that you thought, right? And they're going to be worth five hundred, right? Right. So you haven't made any money. You're flat, right? Um, and that's just from relative valuation and you know money coming in, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what I think is interesting to talk about is what happens. When things go the other way, what happens when there's panic and fear in the market, and how do people react, and how does it weigh on values? Okay, and the first thing is that you know, as as we can all uh, see and just logically, prices go down, right? When there's fear in the market, people sell, prices go down, right? But why do they sell? Okay, and what what forces them to sell? Well, in some cases, it's people buy with margin. So they buy on borrowed money. And when you buy on borrowed money, you got to pay for it, right? And when things go down or things get riskier, a lot of times you have margin adjustments or margin calls. So that might be your bank or brokerage or whoever says, you know what? We think you know, because of what's happening in the market, we suddenly need to pull back on the money we've lent you. So we're maybe pulling your credit or, or we're giving you less of it. And suddenly you have to come up with cash, right? And so you have to liquidate.
1: Right, right. And this causes you to sell off. Right. In the investing world, though, especially in like well, with stocks and bonds, there's actually things called margin accounts, mm-hmm. right? And they have they have margin calls and, and, and all that kind of goes into it. But usually, I don't think levering up to make an investment is the best strategy. But hey, look, look what happened in 2008, right? After 2008, we saw a period of low interest rates and do you uh, the cost to borrow was zero, right? Why not borrow for zero? Well, sorry, it, it also depends on what you're talking about, right? Like, do you
0: think- it is not good to borrow money to buy real estate?
1: No, absolutely. Well, I mean, look, I don't have a real estate investment. Do I think it costs- No, but you have a condo, right? Yeah, but I live in that condo, so it's not an investment property. Okay, fair enough. I have to live somewhere. Fair enough, but I'm saying if
0: tomorrow, if you were to, I mean, again, you're not in the real estate market, but- you, I'm, I'm assuming you assume it's logical to use a mortgage to buy a, an investment property.
1: Absolutely, right. I would even assume it, it, it's it's uh, logical. I would even assume it's it's a mortgage to buy an investment property. If you have the entire principal capital just sitting there in cash, let's say you had a quarter million dollars sitting in cash, and the house is quarter million dollars after everything, I don't think you should put that whole quarter million dollars in the house. Absolutely, I think you should put fifty thousand dollars and then borrow two hundred thousand at like whatever your interest rate is. Well,
0: well, here's and the the great quote is uh, the great quote is um. Banks are institutions that only want to lend money to you after you've proven to them that you don't need it. (laughs) Right. So, so the the you know it's funny in my line of work. Right. When we're doing uh, real estate um, financing deals, people go, Oh, no, 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 you you don't understand. Like this guy, uh, you know, or this family, you know, they've got they've got tons of dough. They don't, uh, you know, they don't need the money. They don't need the financing. And I'm like perfect those are exactly the people (laughs) (laughs) because the banks want to lend money to no risk no risk no not no risk but you know you get it right like that's a little risk they like to see right the person who goes no no no, you don't understand i really need every penny of this
1: loan to close this deal it's like yeah that's like the last thing the bank wants to hear right yeah that's the last thing and and, and, like let's let's look at it from an investment perspective from going back in the cannabis space right Right. when a company comes to you and saying like hey man i need 10 million dollars and we need to use all that whole ten million dollars, and I
0: need tomorrow. I'm going out of business,
1: <laughs> <laughs> right? Let's, let's say let's let's not, let's not say that out of going going out of business, but let's just say that they have ten million dollars um, on their cat on the, like so. Let's, let's say they need the ten million dollars to build out their facility or whatever they need the, the money for. Um, that company I don't think is as attractive as a company that has the cash already on the balance sheet, but is going out to the market to raise a, 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 like a smaller portion of it, right? Similar to like mortgage sure. but using equity. Sure. But using equities as an example. And I like companies like that better.
0: Sure. So the, the point is um, what happens when things go bad, right? And I think that it's very important to learn. like From reading like a lot of financial books, I've got an insight. I guess what surprised me from reading financial books, for example, like a lot of Michael Lewis books was, you know, I guess... When I started investing, I always thought of the more you know, the larger you are, and the more institutional you are, um, the smarter the money is. You're going to make smarter and better investment decisions
1: because you're bigger, you have more. I don't term, know, yeah, a lot of people you, use the coin the term of sophisticated capital.
0: Sophisticated, smart money, right? Yeah. And, and my thought was, well, the bigger you are, the smarter you are, but because you know, you've got. I don't know if you're a pension fund. You've got so many smart people, generations of making money, like great people at, at the top, right? Yeah,
1: minted from like top business schools, totally
0: Right. So, what was fascinating to me when reading these books was seeing that a lot of times, the way institutional, sophisticated capital acts is often irrational. But there's there's a rationale. You know, there's a method to the madness. There's it's rational irrationality. They do things that we would consider poor investment decisions, but then when you break into you know the human incentives and how they're built and how they're set up, you suddenly go, oh, that's why they're doing it. There's a, there's a reason to why they're doing it. So how does this relate to things going down? Well, for example, one of the things is is like let's say you're a money manager, for example, okay, and we're just using generalities here, but yeah. let's say you're a money manager. Um, and you've decided that you're going to invest in the cannabis space. You've got all these clients, you know, what you're working for, and you're investing their capital in the cannabis space, okay? And how you get paid typically is a management fee, right? And sometimes a percentage of the upside. Yeah, performance bonus. Exactly. But really your goal then, the way you're incentivized to do two things. You're incentivized to grow that base of capital very large so you can have a steady management fee coming in. And you're incentivized to, you know, do well, right? So you can earn some of the upside. But the key thing is, is that what you don't want to do, what would be really bad, is if people lose confidence in you and they start pulling their money out, right? Because that could cause, I mean, first of all, it just de- deteriorates your capital, right? And suddenly your management fees are going down, and now you're scrambling because you know you can't pay your bills, and and that was your way of, you know, keeping your lights on. And you know that might spread. You Somebody pulls their money out. Somebody else pulls their money out. Pretty soon, you're out of business, right? So if you think about how you're incentivized, yes, you're incentivized to make people money. But more importantly, you're incentivized to not lose people money, and you're incentivized to stop people from leaving your shop. You don't want them to pick up their capital and go somewhere else. Right. Okay? So that's the sort of paint picture I painted for this particular money manager, whoever they are. So if we use CanTrust as an example, and- where we're sitting right now in July of 2019, CanTrust stock absolutely hammered, has pulled down the rest of the market with it, um, You know, multiple Globe and Mail financial post articles about how they acted in, in you know, really bad faith, allegedly. Um, and there's a potential they might lose their license, who knows, right? Um, so if you're a money manager and you invested in CanTrust, right? And your clients are calling you saying, hey, what's going on with CanTrust? you probably want to be able to tell them, oh, don't worry, we got out of that, right? We don't have any can trust. Like we sold it off, you know, a couple of days ago as soon as the, the bad news hit. So that that's already off our books, right? Now, the problem is that behavior may not be the best behavior, right? Because ultimately the price you sold it at, you might be taking a bath on it and you might've been better off, I don't know, either adding to your position or waiting it out um, and waiting for it to recover. Right. But again, you have to remember that Abby for you and I, when we're managing our own capital, we can do whatever we want. Right. And our goal is to make, you know, the most money possible, but that money manager, that sophisticated smart money, um, that's not necessarily their goal, right. Their goal is to keep their clients, right. And to stop their clients from pulling out, you know, pulling their money out, redeeming and, from their funds, redeeming from their funds. And as we just said, you know, Fear can be more powerful than greed in actually generating, you know, these big decisions, <clears throat> right? So the point I'm getting to there is that a lot of times when panic and fear hits the market, um, it really hits these smart money institutional investors, um, and they have to do things where they start doing things like selling even when prices are low because they have to deal with optics. So one thing I learned, which has been really fascinating, is that a lot of times it's private capital. Yeah, we have some disadvantages, right? Um, but we have some advantages too, some really good ones. I think we
1: have some real advantages right now. In Absolutely. In right? this
0: space, no yeah. question, right? And optics, how huge that is. Like yeah. how many people don't, you know, smart money can invest in cannabis because of optics or don't want to because of optics. Because if you're running a real money fund, and I'm talking like millions, hundreds of millions. Billions yeah but even if you're you know private money manager earning hundreds of millions there's a lot of guys like that out there right guys and gals running hundreds of millions of dollars right yeah you you don't want to say to your client you know again maybe you don't want to Deviate from your blue chip strategy. You don't want to suddenly say, "Look, we're putting going to put small amount of this money
1: into cannabis." But hold on, but they're they're legally bound from doing that because there's things called investment policy statements and mandates on their funds that prevent them from doing that. So
0: some of them, right? But some, like if you're in Canada and it's fully legal, like right, you might be you might be okay to do that. Right? Well, like
1: most of the banks can't do a lot. A lot of a lot of sophisticated institutional money has still uh, been walked into, into the space based off of. Just kind of the sentiment around it, the fact that it's still a Schedule One drug uh, in the states. Um, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the banks are just kind of shying away from it completely because they're afraid, of the, afraid of the fraud aspect to it too, right?
0: Right. So, so okay. So that's a great point you touched on, right? Because what happens when something like CanTrust um, comes out is this puts a real damper on the sector as a whole because it reminds people of uncertainties that we weren't really thinking about. Like nobody was pricing in the. The thought that a big LP, which is listed on the TSX, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange, which is one of the biggest LPs in the world right now, you know, license producer doing cultivation. Um, nobody's pricing in that. Oh yeah, they might lose their license tomorrow because actually they committed, you know, some bad
1: behavior. Yeah, well, I mean, look, like yeah, because we touched it earlier. Call it a black swan event. It's something that you can't ever. The, like you can never account for it. that's the definition of like the the black swan of it. I'm sure there's an ad, the, I'll, I'll, I'll get the actual definition for the next for another episode. But going back to that, like that that's not that's not a cannabis thing. That that has happened everywhere. And I love that you said that you talked about sophisticated institutional capital, smart money. Well, there I'll give an, I'll give you an example of smart money that just went that was just went complete and disarray in a very um, very. Uh, Legitimatized industry. So the forestry industry, the logging industry, very legitimate. Nobody has, like, most people don't have anything against it. Right? There was a company called Sino Forest. This was a company that was from China that had a forest. All right. And they were going to law, they were going to create, like, uh, they were going to export lumber. It was on RBC. For people who are not Canadian, RBC stands for the Royal Bank of Canada. It's not the Bank of Canada. It's the Royal Bank of Canada. It just sounds safe. <laughs>
0: the Royal Bank of Canada. yeah,
1: but it's but it's not like it's not like the Fed or it's not the BOC, the bank of Canada But it's the Royal Bank of Canada. It's Canada's it, largest pri- it's Canada's pro- largest uh, sorry, bank. public bank. yeah, it's Canada's largest schedule, one bank. Um, and so they had Sino Forest as one of their top ten picks. And what ended up happening with Sino Forest was, there was no forest. It was literally just a company in China. There wow. was no forest. And this was in, in this is RBC capital markets. Sophisticated, strong, smart, like proper, like uh, top, top business school uh, inv- um, analysts. They recommended this. And like, like we said, remember we talked about this being very... Thorough in your due diligence, one of the one of the main things is go visit the facility. Nobody visited the facility. Really, mind so you, nobody
0: even went down to down in China to see it. No,
1: I mean, if they went there, I mean, I mean, they might. I would have, be no, but they might have had the wool pulled over their eyes, right? Like... Yeah, exactly. But like, they were, no, there, was, there was literally no forest. There was no they, they forged the documents. It was fraud. But nonetheless, right. it was fraud, right? That was not that didn't happen in cannabis. It happened in forestry. That happened. Mm-hmm. Mining briars. Same thing. But sorry, sorry. So
0: to that point, um WorldCom
1: does that does that not.
0: then pull down the entire forestry sector?
1: That's a good question. We should look back on it and see. Um I don't have access to stock charts right now, but um Well, so maybe maybe do. it
0: doesn't, maybe it doesn't. But what's what's the thing is in forestry um, it's probably just less likely to happen because forestry is an established industry, right? Yeah, exactly. Now what it probably does is that if another company, if you know, ABC company wants to go public in China and it's a forestry company, it's probably going to have a really hard time after a story like that. Right. I mean, because now it's unfairly tainted by what just happened with this other company. Right. Right. So it probably, um, you know, forestry is more um, established. So maybe it doesn't have that big of an impact on the sector as a whole but if there was a more you know nascent sector like you know for example chinese forestry companies those companies are probably going to have a really hard time because they're
1: tainted with that image right, right exactly I and mean, then look i'm sure there was there was sophisticated capital that was going into Brix as well so sophisticated capital isn't always right capital right it's not and and like and look rbc is a great company they're like the, the, the largest bank here in canada they've done so many things right there by everyone I don't think the I don't know I think they're I think they're a great company I think they're very 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 smart and if you look at even their their asset management division like they're they're killing it they're this is. This was just one example that I used. And right. it's just and, funny. It's but it's because... good to
0: know. Everybody makes mistakes, including the most sophisticated capital.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And what I'm getting at is that when it comes to those panic periods, which are, which I think we're in right now, and, and these red periods, and, and right now means you know July 13th of 2019, right. So by the time you hear this, you know we might not be there anymore, right. But the important thing is, it's human nature. These things happen. People get very excited. And then people get very uh, scared, right? And that's the fear and greed the gain the loss. Um, And when the fear hits, it hits fast and it hits quickly and it it can be a contagion. Um, And we don't really know what happens to prices, right? Like people talk about trying to catch the bottom. You know, I think that's a bit of a fool's effort because to know where the bottom is, Right, that assumes that the selling is rational. When we're all what we're talking about here is not always rational. Right, it's it's ne- almost never rational. So, it, you never know where the bottom is going to be. And again, talking about human psychology, investment, you know, good decision making. Um, one of the things I like to do is, if I'm buying in the public markets, I like to buy in blocks. I don't like to buy all. I don't like to try to buy all at once. If I see something and it looks interesting, I'll even just buy a little bit of it because now I'm invested. I'm going to keep my eye on it. Right. And then it starts going, you know, and I might buy some even thinking that it's going to go down further. But I know that if I buy a little bit right now, so let's say like, just, you know, if I, if if I want, if I have a number in mind of how much of the the company I want to own, right. And what I might do is buy five or 10% of that.
1: Right. And Warren Buffett has a quote that says, dip your toe in before jumping in two feet.
0: Okay. I didn't know that. I, I, that was a quote I've, I've never learned. but I Warren Buffett? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah I, I, know know that.
1: That. I mean, I might misquote it, but yeah, essentially sure. it's,
0: yeah. Something it's a, like that. Okay. Yeah. Well, so that to me works because um, uh, how I want to end this off is talking about how you can take advantage of of these various ups and downs and setting yourself up for good decision-making. And I come back to this again. I think the best way to, you know, as you get more experience as an investor, you're going to start telling yourself, oh, no, I don't panic, I don't get caught up in these ups and downs. Well, you know what, Um, the minute you start telling yourself that is the minute that you are really at risk of getting caught up, because we're all humans, we all have emotions, and you know, when panic sets in, it sets in, and it's hard to fight it. So. The best way to combat that, I would say, is setting up systems which allow you to make good decisions again. And some of these systems are, for example, buying and selling in blocks. So if something is going up, you're taking some money off the table, right? And that allows you to um, lock in some of your profits, get some of your capital back. But because you're taking it off in blocks, you know if that if that that company continues to do well and the price keeps going up, well, guess what? You still own a big chunk of it. You've only taken some of the money off the table, so you know that that helps reduce that that um, you know that FOMO or that that fear of of missing out on the future profits. Um, and the same thing when it's going down, or sorry, when the price is going down and you want to buy in because it's you know it's on sale, you don't buy all in at one point because you know that logically as a human, you know if you if like for example, CanTrust, which is falling right now. And full disclosure, I've started a small position in CanTrust. Uh, very, very small and highly speculative, and I don't know much about the company, but you know what I've talked about before is I like buying companies that are oversold or, or there's some panic around right and some irrationality around so my feeling right now is it's it's sort of priced in that you know people are getting out of the name very heavily, and so that creates an opportunity. so I put a little bit of dough into it um, but I just buy a little bit, right? I bought a little bit at like four
1: bucks. Yeah, you dip your toe. I dip my toe. And I, I actually then... butchered that quote, sorry. It's uh, it's don't test the depths of the river with both your feet while taking risk. So dip your toe and as opposed to putting two, uh, as opposed to putting both your feet or jumping in uh, with both feet will be my quote.
0: I I love how <laughs> I love how you took like this poetic quote by one of the world's greatest
1: minds and just mangled it. I uh, butchered it. Yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, and yeah. And, and, it.
0: Well, actually, another great Warren Buffett quote is um. Uh, you don't know who's been swimming naked until the tide comes in. I always swim naked. <laughs> There's a visual I did. You. <laughs> and and you know, how that relates to markets going up and down is that you know, when markets are going up and people are, you know, quote, unquote, swimming naked, right? And that could mean a variety of things. It could mean you know, using a lot of leverage. It could mean not doing their due diligence. It could mean cutting corners. It's hard to see that when the market's going up because everybody's winning. But when markets collapse, then we really get to see, you know, who was using too much leverage, who was acting, um, you know, who wasn't doing their proper research, et cetera, et cetera, right? Who was
1: testing the depths of the river with both their feet?
0: Exactly, and, and not just and no bathing suit.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, so again, in
0: terms of structures, um, Abby talked about the private market, and some people might not be able to invest in the private market because they're not accredited or whatever. But if you are, it's a market I really, I really like to invest in because. My investment is locked up in there for a, a particular amount of time until the company goes public or whatever, and I literally can't sell it, right? So that obviously has you know potential, you know, big potential for risk because what if the company doesn't go public or takes too long or whatever? Um, but I find it helps me make good decisions because you know I don't know what the price of that company is every day. I'm not looking at it every day, right? right? It it allows the company time,
1: that investment time to kind of germinate for sure. And and with the private market, I mean, I, I'm. A- Big, 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 big fan of uh, private equity, and I'm a big fan of uh, investing in the private markets. Um, and with it, I mean, going public is not the only exit strategy with a private with a private equity investment. Like, So there's, there could be a, any sort of liquidity event. Maybe shareholders can redeem at a certain time. Sure, That's sure. agreed upon or it gets taken out by M&A. I mean, there sure. are other opportunities to get your money out. It's not like, it's not like it has to go public and you don't.
0: Know, you get it. But I, I think because, like for example, if I had had to make a much larger investment in CanTrust, I probably wouldn't have done it. Right, because it's on the public markets, I can buy just a little bit, and I right. can I buy, can buy a little bit today. What I did was I started a really small position on like Wednesday when it was let's say like four bucks, and then I on Friday it's like three fifty or something, and I'm like, wow, oh, like I just can't help myself. I'm like, so you sold um, your position. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I would take the loss and move on. No, I'm like, you know what? Let me get a little bit more dough in here. And again, still a very small position for me. I don't know. I'll go much bigger, um, and I fully admit I don't know that much about the company. Like I, I've done. I've read the deck, I've looked at it a little bit. I'm just buying it on the thesis of, you know what, this is highly, highly speculative, but as long as they don't lose their license, it's probably going to be worth more than this in the next one to two years. And I'm just going to enjoy a little bit, a little gain and I'm going to get out. It's it's really a quick trade and and different from what we normally talk about. But the the investment that I do like is the rest of the market, right? Where when this company pulls down the rest of the market, um, the goal is always for me as a long-term investor to buy a good company and at an attractive valuation. So when these good companies start getting pulled down because of can trust and yet those companies are you know, nothing's really changed for them, I'm really happy to pile more money into them. lastly, another another uh, you know thought on sort of structures that work for you. Um, if you can ever be involved in something called a convertible debenture, and so what that is is, uh, instead of investing in straight equity in the company you actually lend the money to the company and you get paid you know some sort of coupon um, so you might get seven eight ten percent interest then and what happens is you have the ability to convert into equity at a certain price before usually dis-
1: yeah it's usually discounted too
0: um, it, it just depends right It depends when you when it goes in like sometimes I see it you know the, let's say the company's already public right and it's trading at two dollars then you might get eight percent interest and the ability to convert at 250.
1: Right. That's that's if it's already public. But sometimes there's private converts. What ends up happening is that they'll say, hey, the IPO price is gonna be XYZ. Right. You're You're gonna get get XYZ minus ten percent. The
0: IPO round or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So but the reasons I like convertible debentures are because you have this time frame imposed on you two years, three years, one year, whatever the, the, the term of the loan is, and you're getting paid to wait. Right. So with margin, you have to pay to wait. Right? You're having to pay out of your pocket every month. Mentally, I think that that makes you, you know, that's a negative. When you're getting paid to wait, the stock goes up, the stock goes down, you know, if you're earning your 8%, I don't know, but just for me personally, I go, "Ah, you know what? I'll wait. Let me wait for the 2 years and see what happens at, you know, at day whatever, 700, right? And let me see how I'm feeling at that day because what's the rush? I'm making 8% while I wait. Right? So the truth is in the cannabis market, you know, to make 8% in a year is not that great, right? I mean, the risk involved with these companies, 8% is like, you know, it's it's not bad, but it's it's certainly not, you know, I think what we expect from cannabis companies. Yeah. But just the fact that you're earning something every month, right? I think that helps you make good decisions. Because, Absolutely. And then
1: seeing that cash flow also yeah. into your account.
0: Yeah. And sometimes you don't get cash flow, to be fair. Sometimes it's, it's accumulative, so yeah. it's just the, the money just accumulates and you get paid out at the end, right? Yeah. Which is obviously a higher risk. But again, it's just mentally, like it's about the psychology and uh, and I've just seen for myself the 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 companies that I have convertible debentures on, I'm I just feel really happy holding it. And I'm like, you know what? I have a date on that when I invest today, there's a two let's say there's a two-year window on it, right? I'm like, it's only been 6 months. Who cares? Right? Like like like, like talk to me in a year. And I'll exactly. make a decision on if I want to convert or not convert or whatever. Yeah. Right. So, so again, that, that just goes into, and, and we'll try to think of more, but um, I like in general with investing, trying to figure out how people think, how you think, and trying to find investments which help you make good decisions.
1: Trying to find investments that which help you make, which help you make good decisions. That's and cool, very well put. Investment structures which help you make a decision. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that I really like, um, and I think a lot of uh, portfolio managers and what, what what we touched a little bit was was solid discipline. Was that, you know, when you when a lot of people enter a position, how many people say, Hey, um, this is probably something for for next time. But when when you enter in, into a position, how many people look at the position and say, Hey, I'm gonna get out at this. This is what I'm looking to get. What is your internal rate of return? Like? how much money do you expect to make? Right. You used your example earlier, Manish, when you had a four or five X return, I don't think you bought that stock being like, if I get two X return, I'm out, right? A lot of people don't, when they buy when they buy securities or when they buy companies, when they buy stocks, they know, okay, what price do I get in at, but how many people say, what price do I get out at? And do you think people should be doing that? I think people should be doing that and they should look at it. However, though, when it gets to that price, you have to reevaluate everything again.
0: So it's funny for you to say that because um, that's exactly what happened. I can't believe I I've almost forgot the story. It's exactly what happened to us on, you know, the one company that I love to talk about, Medifarm Labs, uh, which is we got into private placement. We got in at a time when, you know, it was relatively more difficult for an extraction company to raise capital. Um, and, you know, disclo- disclaimer, still own a ton of it. And, you know, we all had when this company was going public. Right? We, we all had this number in mind, like, oh, if it gets to here, which is like 12x, yeah. we're out. Because we're going to make this much money, and I've never made that much money in my lifetime. Right. So if it goes 12x, we're all out. You know, I've got a group chat with a bunch of buddies who are in it, right? Right. And sure enough, it goes 12x. Is it called and... Mad Boys? <laughs> it's not a bad one, actually. <laughs> um, and it, it goes – it's actually called Deals, 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 funny enough. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it, it goes It goes 12x. And what do we do? We suddenly go, nah, th- we're not going out until it's like 25X,
1: right? Well, so what what happens is when it hit that 12X situation, you look back and you said, listen, like everything that when, when we entered this uh, company – this is what we looked at. We like that. For, for me, it would have been management, clean balance sheet, barriers to entry. Sure, those things are all st- are all still intact. This thing has now p- your position is there. You reevaluate your position. You might even want to be buying at, at that.
0: Well, yeah. Disclosure: I am buying right, and, and when it's getting killed, I am buying into it. Um, and for you know, we're, I'm not going to get nearly the same return I've had before, but I like the company, I like the price, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, but it, that goes to knowing the company and and yeah. knowing what you're getting into, right? So I can feel confident buying it. You know, a price of I just bought something like 425 because you know I think it's going to be worth a lot more than that. But the the point of that that's important is it it's funny to see that behavior in ourselves that you know seeing how we get greedy as it goes up, right? Because if you told me when I was starting that hey it's going to go 15x or 12x, I'd be like oh 12x yeah no problem I'll sell it all right. Um, but then once it goes up to 15 and then 20, you're like oh no I can't get off this train it's too good yeah but. And, and you know, I know you're saying that you should always be able to justify it, which is true. I think the flaw with humans is we're always going to find some way to justify yeah, what we exactly. want to justify. Now, that in our defense, in my defense, I think the investment thesis has changed because now we've seen two good quarters, and we can see what margins are. You know, we can see they're executing. We can see the runway for them doing. You know, it. it to me, again, it's all based on fundamentals, and I can see a forward path. In which it's worth a lot more because that's able to hit these earnings, right? Right. But there's uncertainty in that, and there's Absolutely. there's a lot of uncertainty baked into that, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. For another episode, but uh, I think we we touched on a lot of good stuff today, and I think we actually checked off everything on this list. And in summary, I, I mean, FOMO being the fear of missing out, but also the fear of having future regret. Um, it's real. It doesn't only apply to millennials, but I think it applies to us the strongest because of how we grew up with social media. Uh, I think it's important to recognize it. I think it's important to take a deep breath. And I can personally tell you just from all of the investments I'm seeing across my desk, there's a lot of companies going public in the next year to two years. Absolutely. So don't don't ever feel like, you know, hey, if I miss out on this company, I'm never gonna get to, you know, make money. No, there's a lot of opportunities. And look,
1: I touched on it earlier, I still think we're early in the cannabis space. For sure. And for any like baby boomers that are listening, FOMO is literally the grass is green on the other side or fear of regret. Right.
0: So that's FOMO. It's important to study, you know, people, how they think, how they work, incentives, how things are when markets are going up, how things are when markets are going down. And if you stick to our our credo, buy companies, not stocks and try to get to know these companies very well, then when things are going down, what you should be doing is buying. And the corollary to that is, you know, you always got to be, when you're managing your portfolio, decide how much cash you want to keep, right? Because if things start going down, you want to be able to deploy some cash. And I can tell you right now, I'm in a position where right now where I'm tight on cash. And if I have to deploy cash... That means I'm selling other non-cannabis stocks to get into the cannabis space. Right? And that's not, it's what I'm doing. It's not the position I want to be in, but it is what I'm doing. Um, and again, I love it. Again, good decision making. If you know, if you have the right structures in place, it can definitely help.
1: So, you had a mandate and you said, hey, this is doing better. Let's pivot. Pivoting is good. We'll see. Time will tell time will tell. Will, we'll we'll look will.
0: back on this in a year and two years and 10 years and time will tell. So, yeah guys, thanks um,
1: again for listening.
0: Thanks again for listening. The email is cinpodcast@gmail.com. Tell us what you thought, your questions, etc., what we should talk about. And as always, my name is Manish. This is my co-host Abby. This is the Cannabis Investing Network podcast and we will catch you next time.